Hey, everybody. Hope you're having a great day today. Jason, it's time to talk Area 51. Mm. It's time to talk spy planes, hidden technology, crazy U.S. tech, reverse engineered craft, and our friend Bob Lazar. And we're talking to a man who's pretty much an expert in all of those categories, including a close personal friend of Bob for 35 years. He can tell you things about Bob that if you're not a Bob believer, you just might change your mind. Uh, again, we're non-biased. We believe in Bob Lazar. 100%. Love the story. But yeah. Jim Goodall is an aviation historian, knows everything about every stealth fighter ever made, planes that never have seen the light of day. He can Submarines write... even, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we're going to we're gonna go in a lot of areas. We're going to talk about some cool tech. Uh, he has some pictures he sent to us of him in like Blackbird stealth fighters and in areas that the average person would never have access to. And he's one of the foremost experts on Area 51 and a lot of covert things that have happened over the years. So uh, we're going to, I guess, pick his brain on a bunch of stuff. And he's a super nice guy, easy to talk to. And we're the we're the kids and we're chatting with Grandpa today. So I'm excited. That's awesome. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. So we'll roll our credits and we'll be right back with uh, Mr. Jim Goodall right here on UAP Studies Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my best buddy, Mr. Jason Gilmet. On deck, my man. I'm, I'm ready for this interview. This is going to be fun. I'm really happy that Jim is here joining us today. So this is going to be a great conversation. I got so many questions. I can't think of anybody better <laughs> to talk to involving, you know, spy tech, aviation, cool planes, even connections within our community, some deep friendships he's had for years with some very popular names. We're going to get to all that. Jim is an Air Force veteran. Uh, I would say one of the foremost experts on Area 51. He's also an aviation journalist and historian, and uh, he's here to chat with uh, with us about all things Area 51, Bob Lazar related. <laughs> I see the United Nuclear T-shirt. That is Bob Lazar's company. That's... Welcome yeah. to the show, Jim. Great to have you, brother. I'm I'm absolutely delighted to be here. And the shirt I got Bob Lazar made it for me when I was visiting him here a couple of weeks ago. Amazing. Yeah, I spent a day and a half with him. And I just uh he's he's he is the same person I met 35 years ago. Uh he is easygoing, he is about as uh, as considerate as they come. He's mm. soft spoken. Uh his wife Joy is one of the sweetest women and you know. In, in the whole wide world and she's 68 or 69 she looks like she's 35 she's a skin specialist i mean she does you know facials for a living and they're just he's as happy as he's ever been you know he has 10 acres he has three horses three dogs and his i think it's a 30 by 40 or 30 by 50 lab uh, where he goes and there's about 10 different stations he has in there, depending on what he's doing. And when I, when I said, Hey, can I get a United nuclear shirt? He said, well, just then go, go make one. He went, he went into his lab, came back with this shirt. So this was given to me by Bob. That, I should have had him sign it, but that uh, sounds like Bob. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like Bob. Yeah. Hang he's, on. I'll go make you something. Right. Yeah. yeah, he, yeah. He's, he he's did just, that with a rocket car once either for George Knapp or Jeremy Corbell. He yeah. was messing around and or they needed a, 
air filter or dehumidifier or some random thing. And he made it with scrap parts out of his shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a, so, he's a, he's a real life MacGyver. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant guy. And we'll chat more about Bob in this episode as well, but I want to get people to, to come become familiar with you. Sort okay. of give us a little breakdown of your history, what you've done and what got you into this particular subject of UFOs and high well, strangeness I mean, and all the rest. Uh, uh, to, to start things, I'm 78. I've been around for a long time. Uh, most of the research I did was pre-internet, so you had to actually go out and track the person down and interview them in person. There was very little. But my uh, my love of aviation started when I was about five. We were living in San Jose in the Bay Area, and uh, across the Guadalupe River, uh, Creek was uh, San Jose Municipal Airport, not the international airport it is today, but it was just a you know, little uh, airport. And I had already gone to bed. We were living in a duplex. And my dad came in oh, about 10 minutes after I had gone to bed. It was still light outside. He says, hey, I don't know what's coming, but you got to see it. So we went outside, and all you could hear is, ah, and the ground is vibrating. And over the coast mountains came not one, not two, but 24 Convair B-36s. Wow. And I was hooked. Wow. I've always loved machines. I've always loved machines. And uh, fast forward a couple of years, I'm not about about 10 years old. I My best friend's dad is base commander at Moffett Field Naval Air Station there in Mountain View. And uh, I used to go over it all the time. We were referred to as Captain Smith's son and that friend of his by the, <laughs> by, by the Marine Guards and, and uh, uh, Shore Patrol. So I was over there every weekend, you know, you know, during school time. And I was over there a lot during the summer and Danny said, oh, there's something, something really cool in hangar one. And we were around so much. We didn't, you know, we didn't go any place we weren't supposed to as far as taxiways or runways or whatever, but we were there so much. We were invisible. We were mm. hiding in plain sight. So we, uh, we rode into big hangar one. That's the big gigantic one that the Google brothers have taken over. And at the far end, on uh, closest to the bay, there was an area that was cordoned off. And it was just a sign that said, keep out. Not use of deadly force authorized or any, no guards, nobody there. So we rode our bicycles to the end. And you know, Danny said, come with me. We go behind these black curtains. And there is the prototype XF-104 Starfighter. Wow. Now, I love airplanes. And I saw this thing. And I, I mean, it was you know they, they advertised it as the rocket with a man in it. And it was just unbelievable. It was still classified secret at the time. And there was no, I say there was no guard, but you know, things back then are different than are today. Danny said, well, get in the cockpit. So no boarding ladder over, open the can open the canopy. It's a side open canopy. I get in, close the canopy. He latches it. I'm in there for about two minutes. And I said, you know, I'm sitting on an ejection seat. And you know, I didn't realize at the time because I was only ten that you know, it's been de-armed because it was in the wind tunnels there at uh, Ames, you know, you know, Ames big wind tunnel complex there at uh, Moffat Field, and we couldn't. Danny and I couldn't un you know, undo the latch. Oh, damn! So, so you were stuck to, inside the plane. I, I was stuck inside the cockpit. Oh my! So he had to run and get some maintenance guys oh, and no. shore patrol and the Marines and Lockheed <laughs> guys. And, 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 you know, it's it's been almost 70 years and my butt still hurts. I got, oh, you talk about our getting my butt chewed out. But that's where my first love affair started with Lockheed airplanes, Skunk Works airplanes particularly. So fast forward to March 10th, 1964. 
I'm an airman second class. That's an E3. They don't call them second classes anymore or third classes. That would be politically incorrect. And I was there. I was temporary. I was there at TDY, temporary duty from Lowry Air Force Den in Denver to support three programs for ground-based telemetry. And I was a communications specialist. And the uh, when I, you know, the first airplane that I saw in the orders was the YC-141 Starlifter, the XB-70, and a classified program. And I didn't know what that classified program was, because it was classified. <laughs> so uh, the morning of uh, uh, it was February 29th, uh, leap year, and it, it came out on a Saturday morning, two YF-12 Blackbirds came over from Area 51. They came straight in. You know, they had, they've been flying out in the desert, but they came straight in, pulled up, being, you know, uh, to get pushed back into their hangar. And the engines are still running. And the heat from the J-58 set up the deluge system, which dumped about 60,000 gallons uh, of water into the hangar. I mean, it just pushed, almost drowned the poor Lockheed reps. Whoa. And the, all the alarms went off. Hey, there's something. Something crashed on the flight line, and we're eight. We're eight miles. Our barracks are eight miles from the flight line. And I went out running out to uh, get my truck, and it was already gone. So I, you know, I heard something incredible over the next ten days. And I had worked a lot of overtime installing the you know you know systems both at, at both ends of uh, the intel the information gathering part. And uh, so I had some time off and it was a Tuesday. It was about 3.15 in the afternoon. And I'm waiting for the Northrop shuttle. They had a Piaggio, I think it's a going pusher type of thing. It was going between Edwards and their offices in Hawthorne, California, in LA. And there was room. So I was, uh, I heard a roar. I mean, a huge, an incredible roar. I've been hearing all week long and not seeing it because they've been inside and went running down the taxiway. I look over to the XB70 test pad, which hadn't rolled out yet. And that's, I thought it was the X15 fire coming out of the back end, blowing dust halfway across Rogers Dry Lake. But the people were too small. And all of a sudden said, Hey, we're loading. So we're running back in. I get in the airplane. We taxi, we go down down the taxiway and we just took off over the lake bed. And we tack, we, we bank over, and I look straight down on a YF-12 Blackbird Interceptor. You know, they only built three of those. And I looked down and I could not believe what I was seeing. It was absolutely the most incredible thing. And to, you know, to get a, a relative uh, footprint they they had already they had just shut down the engine and they were towing a c-130 by it in front of it so I, you could see just how big that puppy was and uh the following monday when i got when i got back to the base uh i, I got handed my work order and it was a lockheed hangar and i walked into the into the back of the lockheed hangar and i'm looking at the ass end of two blackbirds and i'm 18 years old it's 1964 and that was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I've been, I was stuck. So I never thought I'd be where I'm at today you know, as far as you know, knowledge, knowledge on the Blackbird. But in, when I got out, I got out of the service at the end of 66. And I, uh, I ended up working for the phone company in LA. And then I ended up going to work for Xerox. But 1968, I sent a letter to Lockheed, to CIA, 
to the Secretary of the Air Force, Secretary of Defense, and some other people asking for color eight by tens of the Blackbird. Um, and their official policy was not to cooperate. So I started digging. And the more I dug, the more I found out, the more I found out, the deeper I dug. So over the course of the last 60 years, Jesus, from a historical point of view, according to Ben Rich, who was a longtime friend of mine, uh, I'm the most knowledgeable person on the planet on the history and development of the Blackbirds. Wow. They were so compartmentalized back then that if you were working on widget A and your buddy's working on widget B, you didn't you didn't talk about what you did. Yeah. It was you know, it was that level of uh, of I don't patriotism, whatever it is. Today it doesn't work so much. You know, you're going to find someone who, you know, with their own agenda, they're going to go and do what they want. But that was really the beginning of my passions. And, and then on, uh, in 1976, I decided uh, to join the, the Air Guard. And I got, I got actually uh, went in as a communication specialist, but shortly thereafter, I, you know, I became the wing historian. And, but I, I went in the, the Guard, so I have a little pink ID card that got me on every base in the United States, except for the restricted ones. And I'm a good enough uh, BS or I can talk my way into any flight line. And I did. And over the course, uh, up through 9-11, when everything changed, I've been on the ramp to photograph at 216 Air Force, Air Guard and Reserve bases in all 50 states. Wow. Wow. And you so, sent us some pictures, actually. I'm going to bring them up here. You can go through what they are. Okay. Because uh, they are very cool. So we'll start with the first one. So you go ahead and describe what we're looking at here, Jim. Oh, that's that's me at Beale Air Force Base. I'm gonna Handsome start. man. Handsome yeah. man. Yeah. That, that's when I had dark hair. That wasn't that wasn't real. That wasn't my real dark hair that came out of a bottle. I, I, I started turning gray when I was about 15. <laughs> and they say, I got the gray hairs. I earned every single one of them. Yeah. So that's that's a Beale Air Force Base, and that's an, that's inside an SR seventy one. Okay, okay, that's that's my baby. That was my baby for ten or well, fifteen years. That is the eighth built Blackbird. That's an A twelve. This one uh, has flown straight and level at ninety two thousand five hundred feet. It has uh, during flight test. Jim Eastham was flying it. And they were, uh, this was the envelope expansion airplane. And they were, you know, they, they were having problems with the inlet. They hadn't been able to go a sustained, you know, Mach 2.8 or 2.9 at that time. And they had been playing with the inlet schedule and they had duct taped over some stuff. They had pinned, they had pinned the, the tertiary doors at the, in the afterburner. They had, I think it uh, put them in the open or the closed position and they weren't, they, they got up to about 2.7, 2.8. And no matter what they did, the airplane wouldn't accelerate past that. So uh, uh, Jim was up there trying to, you know, Jim Easton was up there trying to figure out uh, what, what he can do. And he was in real, real bad air. And he dropped the nose and all of a sudden he got in good air and things started popping. He didn't know what it was. He said it was almost like something was breaking on the airplane, but, but all the instruments said, hey, you're okay. Well, the pin uh, free-floating uh, tertiary doors started breaking, you know, popping loose from their being pinned. And for about 15 seconds when he hit the good air, all of a sudden he everything redlined. And he went from like 2.9 to 
to Mach 3.56 for about 15 seconds. And he realized that, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so he goes his descent profile and head back, back to the barn. So there's, you know, it's the, the two point and the 3.56 is a momentary, you know, event. Uh, the airplane was designed from the beginning to fly at Mach uh, uh, 3.24. That's that's the sweet spot for the inlets. And it's more efficient at Mach 3.2 than it is subsonic. And it's just, I've been over every square inch of that airplane. I've been in, I've had every panel open. And of course, we had to cut the wings off and put it inside a C5 to get it to Minnesota. But we, you know, we put it back together, and uh, after 15 years, the CI said, well, we want that airplane. So the SOBs took it from me, and I was the uh, rat bastard at the Air Force Museum approved it. And they did it over the, the Thanksgiving, Christmas uh, holidays when no one's around. And we had 60 days to respond. The major front page of the Wall Street Journal fighting the Air Force Museum and the CIA but that's me, uh, a young me. God, that was woohoo! Thirty-five years ago. It's amazing the crystal clear images too. Like they look HD, so that's amazing. Yeah, I know. I, I've always shot with good cameras, so I had uh, I've had Nikon's most of my life. Yeah. So okay, we'll no. go to the next pick here. What are we looking okay. at? I think that's the plane with the wings cut off you just mentioned, yeah, right? That, and the guy sitting uh, in front of it, it's Jim Eastham. He was the first guy to fly the airplane third guy, and he sat in the cockpit of our airplane. This is the first time I've been in the cockpit of an A-12 in 25 years. And when we when we loaded it up, the loadmaster said, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's going to fit. We had one and a half inches of clearance when we rolled that puppy back into the C-5. That's nothing. Yeah, it's but, hardly but the, way, yeah. but the way I got this, way I got the airplane in the C-5 in August of 89, a longtime friend of mine, Ben R. Rich, the president of Lockheed Skunk Works. We had a, it wasn't a pen pal. We would call each other. He'd primarily call me. This went on about once a quarter for over 20 years. And Ben calls me at home. He said, Jim says, I have it from, from the, the horses. And he stopped for a second. He was to say the, but, but he stopped the horses, the horse, the horse's mouth that the blackbirds aren't going to make it through Congress. And if anybody could scrounge one, it's you. So I said, okay, I, you know, I'll, I'll accept the challenge. So I, I went over to the base and I got on Autovon or DSN, which is a, a government phone system. And I called the adjutant general of the state of New York. And secretary answered and I said, uh, you know, General Weaver's office. I said, yes, ma'am, this is Sergeant Goodall with the 133rd. Is General Weaver available? Just a minute, Sergeant, I'll put you through. So General Weaver gets on and said, uh, Sarge, how can I help you? And I said, sir, I have a question. He said, shoot. He said, how would the New York Air Guard, <laughs> excuse me, like to move the world's fastest airplane in a couple of your C-5s? And he dead silence for a few seconds. He said, you mean the Blackbird? I said, yes, sir. He said, when you're ready, you call Will Hall. So uh, we had that. Uh, taken care of. So I went to my boss, Major General Al Schwab, and he said, General Schwab, I want to get a Blackbird for our museum. He starts laughing at me. He said, sir, do me a favor. Rather than say no, give me the opportunity to fail. 
He said, all right, smarty, how are you going to get it here? And I started to get that covered. So what do you mean? I said, I talked to the AG at, uh, at New York, and he said I could have a couple of his C5s to move it. <laughs> so that part was taken care of. Arnie Gunnerson from Pratt & Whitney was trying to get an, a Blackbird for West Palm Beach, and he'd gone to Air Force, not guard, Air Guard, but Air Force, and asked if they could lease a C5, and the Air Force said yes. It's about $970,000 a day plus gas. <laughs> And I scrounged two for eight days each for free. <laughs> so I have to be the best scrounger in the United States military because not only did I get a Blackbird and an A-12 Blackbird at that, but two, two C-5s to move it. But that isn't the best part. Uh, we loaded the thing up on uh, the 27th of October, 1991. They didn't have gas at Palmdale. So we flew to Travis, spent the night. Next morning, we took off, and we're heading out. We're about 35, 40 minutes out, and the chief master sergeant, loadmaster, is going down to check the load. I said, can I go down with you? And he said, normally the answer would be no, but since this is your project, sure. So I went downstairs, uh, looked at the airplane. I'm just sitting there, just grit. You couldn't slap the grin off my face. So I went out, I climbed up in the landing gear. I walked along the chines. I had a wheel chalk stuck in the canopy, so it didn't close all the way. The counterbalance was, was out of nitrogen. So I opened up the canopy. I had a five-gallon bucket in on the ejection seat. It was all the way down, and I was cushioned. And I got in the cockpit, closed the canopy, and I'm in there for about 45 minutes. And I'm, I'm just sitting there with a, a grin on my face that you couldn't slap off me. And mm. about... Uh, after about 45 minutes, I heard a rap on the bottom of the uh, airplane. I opened up the canopy. Say, yeah, we got to go back up. So went back up. Now we're about 40 minutes out of Minneapolis. And we're starting our gradual descent. And the chief comes back and he said, the boss said you could uh, be in the cockpit when we land. Well, I'm already up front on the C-5. And he said, no, it says uh, downstairs. So... Once we landed, I called I called Ben Rich the next day, and I said, Ben, I think I hold a record that no one can, will ever be able to match. And he said, what's that? I said, I'm the only person on the planet to have been in the cockpit of a Blackbird at 33,000 feet at Mach 0.72 inside another airplane and landed it as well. And Ben said he was laughing so hard he almost wet his pants. <laughs> Uh, he was he was will, he was he threatened to issue a issue me a uh, Mach three minus card, but he never did. But that's something that that no one ever, will ever be able to do, because yeah. now with all the fraud, waste, and abuse crap that's going on in our military, uh, it just you just couldn't pull that off. So it, it was it was a once in a lifetime event. And it was just one of the more exciting things I've ever done. Yeah. Right. You want to go to the next one? Yeah. I think that's a similar pick. Yeah. Same plane being loaded she, up. She's going in. Okay. That's, I'm at Whiteman Air Force Base. I'm about 50 pounds lighter now than I was there. And I also needed a haircut. I realized that. But if you notice the data block up uh, in the upper left-hand corner, yeah. I'm, I'm going into the spirit of Kitty Hawk. It's a B2. 
And I'm the only one in my neighborhood to have flown the B2 simulator. And I did that for over two hours. Uh, I've been there. I've been there half a dozen times. Awesome. And I, I want to go. I actually want to go up and see if I can go for a ride in the real airplane in the jump seat. That would be a kick. So that's what that's what my that's one of my goals in life. I don't know if I'll be able to pull it off, but uh, I'm well I'm well thought of in the B two community, and with exception with a few exceptions, I'm well thought of in the Blackbird community too. And there's a couple pilots for whatever reason. Uh, I sort of grate their ass because I wasn't part of the program, but I'm one of the most knowledgeable persons on the program. Yeah. So you can go to the next one. Okay, this is. I love this shot. This just shows you just how wide that airplane is. We're just you know, beginning to take the uh, skin panels off. There's about uh, top and bottom on both sides. There's uh, about 2,400 screws, and on the bottom they're riveted. So you know, we had to drill those out. Those are uh, titanium rivets. Now, Jim, just just so for clarity of the picture, so uh, for the uh, listeners that are not seeing the picture, it's. Uh, I believe this is the Blackbird, but the the right. back end of it. Uh, now, is it being assembled, or is it being disassembled, or no, reassembled? We're, we're we're getting ready. Uh, this view is at uh, Site Ten, which is now the home of the Lockheed Skunk Works at Air Force Plant Forty Two in Palmdale, California. And I was a sort of a Western view, and I'm standing up on a uh, uh, you know, you know work stand you know, to take take this picture. And this just shows you just how it's a 58 foot wingspan. And you know, we're looking at 103 feet of uh, fuselage, you know, in front and it's all fuel. Yeah. But we had, we had to take those off. We, we marked the, uh, where we had to cut and we had, we, you know, I knew, I knew I had gone into a C5 and measured every which way I could to make sure this thing would fit. And, uh, and it did. You said you had so, an inch and a half only? As, inch and uh, a half clearance. That was total clearance on the floor wow. uh, against the floor whales. But I had taken in consideration that if it was if it was too tight, we could put a come along between the landing gear and torque them in to give us another inch or two. Yeah. So that wasn't a concern. So you're good at thinking outside the box, Jim. I always have. Okay, yeah. now this, this is a very famous uh, shot. There's only two of us still alive. The guy in the black uh, jacket with the sunglasses, that's Stuart Brown. Stu Brown uh, did the uh, article on in uh, Popular Science in March of 94 on the uh, Area 51. Six million people read the you know, that issue. Of course, the handsome guy with the red hat and the camo uh, jacket, that's me. Behind me is Tom Luttrell. He was the commandant of the Tulare Police Department. Uh, lost him uh, to cancer years ago. Glenn Campbell, who ran and started up the Area 51 Research Center in uh, Rachel, he's gone. Uh, the handsome guy in the blue, uh, you know, yeah, I guess it's a breaker, whatever, and a black hat, that's Bob Gilliland, the first guy to fly the SR-71. He's gone. And then my very, very dear friend at the end, uh, John Andrews, he was the development manager for testers. He came out with the big F-117 kit. He came out with the F-19, uh, you know, the quarter inch SR-71 and YF-12. 
and he was like my brother. We talked every day, and we we he I referred to him as Spy One, and he referred to me as Spy Two. And we get on the phone and we say, testing, testing, testing. This is spy one talking to spy two. We're going to talk about, and we'd, we'd like list, list off every uh, classified program name that we can find and think of. And then we just start talking. And it's, 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 I, I talked to the guys at the Pentagon uh, when I was there during desert storm and they, they said, Hey, uh, I said, were they listening to us? And they said, don't give them more credit than they're worth. Um, they're just, you know, they're just, you know, most of the guys that are in security service and whatever are, are doing a good job, but you know, they're not, they're not going to listen to everything and you're not, you're not that important. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> Honest answer. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and what was in the backdrop there? What Valley or, or, uh, landscape are we looking at? That's Tippecoo Valley. This is December of, uh, 91, uh, Stuart and I uh spent the night on top of the mountain and you can see how warm it was with the snow down below it's cozy yeah it was 21 degrees that night with about a 25 mile an hour constant wind it was cold oh yeah but i lived in minnesota at the time so i was used to it Stuart, not so much this is my airplane after we brought it back put it back together painted it in authentic black shield markings now i uh, i took I, I took the liberty of uh, taking this shot cutting off the landing gear and cutting off the ground <clears throat> and putting it into the air because it's the, because it's the only i don't have any shots of of a cia a12 in the air so i put one in and i've used it i use it in my business card and i use it on on other things as well so but but now that this airplane now sits on a pedestal at the headquarters of CIA, and it was really funny they they used one of my photos in a in a book on Archangel, you know, a booklet on the history of the A12s. And you open up the the book, the first picture you see is mine. First of all, they didn't ask my permission, and they didn't give me photo credit, and that really really yeah. That's not my cool. yeah. So my my good friend Jim Stevenson, who's also an author, he lives in D.C. He did the five billion dollar misunderstanding on the Navy A twelve. He's a uh, he's a, uh, a specialist on copyright and copyright protection. He said said Jim said the uh, if a government if our government uses a copyrighted photo in a publication without the permission of the copyright holder, you can, you can uh, charge them and get up, up to $37,500 for that. So I sent the CIA a bill for $37,500. And I get this nasty gram back from, uh, from them saying, oh, we could have purchased that uh, photo from a stock photo company or got it from Lockheed. Cause I shot it from the top of our alert hanger, looking straight down on it. I said, if you, if you would have, if you could have, you would have, I said, yeah, it said, how do we know it's your photo? So I sent them 10 examples that has been in publications with my name, with a little C with a, a you know, around with a small circle and C yeah, inside copyright. of it. Yeah. That funny little symbol. So I get, I get a call. I sent this back off to him. 
I get a call from the chief legal counsel for the director of central intelligence. Uh, you don't get much higher up the food chain than that. Yeah. And I said, Mr. Goodall, we understand that, yes, this is your photo. And we do apologize. Uh, the gentleman who put the booklet together has a new understanding on the improper use of copyrighted material. <laughs> and trust me, he won't do it again. But I can't accept $37,500. I'm thinking to myself, I'd go for $500. Yeah. I, I said, make me an offer I can't refuse. He said, five grand. I said, with one addition. I mean, I about fell off my chair when he said five grand. Uh, I said, I want to have permission to come on to the campus of the CIA and photograph my airplane and do a complete 360 degree walk around with my camera without restrictions. And he said, well, that has to be approved by the director of central intelligence. I said, I'll wait for the call. And I get a call from Mr. Levine you know, a couple of weeks later and he said, it's been approved. I said, okay, I'll, I'll figure out when I'm going to be out there. And I arrived at the back gate of CIA on the 22nd of April, 2009. And as I drive up, I'm in a buddy of mine's car. It's not a, it's not a rent a car. It's a buddy of mine's car. I pull up as I'm rolling down the window. I don't even have my, my ID out. The guard said, Mr. Goodall, welcome to CIA. <laughs> So uh, they knew I was there. And, and he said, he just handed me a blue card, uh, said distinguished visitor. And he said, just go to the front gate, front door, just follow, you know, follow the road. It will say DV only, park there, you're fine. So I didn't even show my ID. I just, you know, I just drove up. <laughs> he knew That's who awesome. I was. And then as I, as I go into the atrium and it's huge. Uh, the, the guard at the far end said, oh, Mr. Goodall, welcome to CIA. Michelle will be right with you. And Michelle was the uh, PAO for CIA at the time. And she comes out and she is a drop dead, gorgeous blonde. She's in a red suit. Not fair. Not no, fair. No, she, says, <laughs> she says, you know, I've been here for I've been here for 21 years. You're the first civilian to be allowed to come onto our facility and photograph. You're and a good I talker, said, Jim. I'm a, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Would have been a great car salesman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so this, these are your works. This is your yeah, passion. I, I have uh, 29 books in print. The one, Nottest Columbia class, uh, is at uh, Osprey right now is 352 pages and I cover all the nuclear powered submarines built for the United States Navy, either built or under construction. And that's, as the count is 227 of them. And every submarine has a page and every one of the name boats have uh, more than one page. They have uh, up to 10. And I cover, let's say I, I start with the Nautilus and I go all the way through to the Columbia and it'll be out in November, just in time for Christmas. The one above it is my pride and joy. That's 75 years of Lockheed Skunk Works. Five of the former uh, heads of the Skunk Works have written me said, this is their favorite book. That and my Blackbird book, which is right next to it uh, from uh, Shepherd Publishing. So I've... Uh, you know, I've, I've just had a ball. And then in, in my submarines, I have my airplane friends who said, 
what the hell are you doing with submarines? I said, they, they, they hit all my buttons. So what do you mean? I said, they're black, they're stealth, and they're deadly. And no one can see them at work because they're underwater. And the general public only sees, you know, the top three or four feet of the hull and the sail. And that's it. And I've I've been able to get, I've been on uh, 21 nuclear powered submarines. I have uh, uh, I've been at 400 feet deep in a uh, ballistic missile submarine. I I went through the Straits of Juan de Fuca on the Henry M. Jackson as it's going out in patrol. They go out and do angles and dangles and come back in. And as we're going through the Straits of Juan de Fuca, I look behind me. And behind me, there's 24 launch tubes. And in those 24 launch tubes had to be probably in the neighborhood of 75 to 100 hydrogen bombs. And I sort of smiled to myself and said, you know, Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington don't have a thing on me. There's no smoking in that submarine, that's for sure. No, no, no. no. And, you know, and I, you know, as, as a military historian, I see, you know, guys in the cockpit, I'm going to go back, walk back, go to the bathroom. They're in a B-52. There is no bathroom. Yeah. There's no place you're going to walk back to. Or, you know, the grates on the floor. No, they have, you know, they have solid floors. And, uh, you know, go underneath the floor or above the ceiling to crawl in. Every square inch or cubic inch of that submarine is when they're getting ready to go out and patrol is occupied. Yeah. So, but I just had a great time. The, the, the Navy likes what I do. Uh, the, this uh, actually, I, I got a question though, that, that pops sure. up based on your work and, you know, your understanding of, of airplanes, secret project airplanes, how they fly capabilities. Now we study a lot on you know people that are are trying to figure out the physics of objects in the skies, how they maneuver. Yeah. For instance, uh, you know the Blackbird you mentioned it was uh, designed to go at Mach three point two four. When we're we're talking about a turn radius at that speed for that plane, what are we looking at? Like how long would it take for it to make a turn? Well, it's not it's not the length of time it's it's the distance travel it's about 180 mile radius to turn okay so when like when we hear you know objects that are able to go at that speed and then make a right angle turn as far as we know physically that would break the plane and or kill the well, pilot right no no uh excluding human involvement in a craft that d does that uh, i had a, a friend of mine uh Bill Fox, he had 35, 36 years at the Skunk Works. And we just we just bonded here back in the 70s. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, do we have something that could be going at, you know, Mach 10 and then make a 90 degree turn? I said, no, yeah, we have that ability. You know, in fact, there's there's some stuff that, you know, there's some uh, anti-ballistic missile stuff that does that, that could be going, you know, you know, 15,000 miles an hour, then make a 90, de you know, 90 degree banner or 45 degree turn or whatever. Uh, and you're pulling two or 300 G's. Uh, you know, we have, you know, the hardware and the equipment can, you know, can handle that. For you know, a good example, the copperhead round that they put in, I think in the 105 or and 155 millimeter uh, uh, cannons, it's, it's, it's guidable. It, there's yeah. you know, there's electronics in it. I don't know if they still use the copperhead, but but you know you blast out of, out of a 155 millimeter howitzer, 
uh, you're going to exceed uh, a couple of G's, that's for sure. Right. And, and the electro, I mean, electronics are designed and work and, and built, to, you know, to uh, function. The uh, on my books down there, the F-117 book, uh, that was the very first one on the F-117. And we sold 67,000 copies. Uh, I should have made the New York Times bestseller list, but I wasn't listed. And the SR-71 pilot's hand, you know, pilot's manual. Uh, Dave Lux, who was the head of, uh, in charge of the Blackbird at NASA, uh, Dryden, he's the one who sent me the book. And it and it irritated uh uh, Dave uh, Emmons, who was in charge of security on the Blackbird program so much that he never spoke to Dave again, even in meeting. He'd tell, he'd said, you can tell Lux, he can go kiss my ass. And Lux is sitting right next to my other side. <laughs> I mean, they did not, they were, they were pissed. But when I, uh, when I didn't, when I, my Blackbird book came out, I, I called up uh, Dave and I said, Dave, I says, I want to send you my Blackbird book. And his thought was, it's another Blackbird book, yippee skippy. So I sent it to him and I get an email back from him. He said, I thought this was just going to be another one of those, you know, me too books. This is great. I says, I have it. It's right in the middle of my my trophy table in my living room where he has all his Blackbird memorabilia. So that really, that just tickled the hell out of me. And and uh, Jeff Babion, who I inter- who I interviewed and uh, did a book signing at the Skunk Works in June of uh, 21, he said he has two books, his two favorite books in his man cave that no one's allowed to touch is my Blackbird book and my Skunk Works book. Wow. And that just tickled the hell out of me. Uh, Big compliment but, for sure. That's huge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've... Uh, there were, you know, we there's there's a uh, uh, this was taken. He had my book upside down. This is Bob Lazar at S five. Uh, this was taken on the twenty third of May two thousand twenty three. Uh, S five is what he's code named his lab, correct? Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, it's the big brother to S four. Right. But but no yeah. UFO is near. Someone suggested he get a you know uh, put together a hand scanner. At the front door, just you know, just uh, yeah, he could build one. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, he could yeah. build one that works. Bob Bob Lazar, what people don't understand, Bob Lazar has a photographic memory. Yeah, I mean, he can he could read something, and twenty years later, he can he can tell you uh, every word on page twenty three or four hundred and ten or whatever. Yeah, he is, he, I mean. Um, and he's he's he is this one of the sweetest people I've ever known, and his wife is equally as sweet. And my next thing I'm gonna get from him, uh, but I'm gonna get a teacher. I'm gonna get an EGNG teacher because it says <laughs> uh, reverse engineering of alien technology <laughs> on the bottom. How did you guys meet, Jim? Uh, that was the funny part. Uh, uh, I met met him through John Lear, and John and I we go back to '73. So what's that? Fifty years, and we lost him two, uh, a year and a, wait, last year. We lost yeah. uh, uh, John. He was. I'm surprised he made it past 2015. But this is in November of '88. No, December of yeah, November of '88. They announced the the Air Force announced the existence of the B two stealth bomber and the F one seventeen. They released it on the the 11th and the 22nd of uh, November. 
first week of January, I'm on my way to Las Vegas and I call up Lear and I said, Hey, I'm coming to town. We're going to get in a car. We're going to, you know, we got to find out where this F-117 is flying out of. And he said, why do you know it's fine? It's, it's supposed to be flying out of a place called Tonopah test range. So I said, well, let's go. So, you know, we jump in the car, we're heading up us 95. We're just North of Scotty's junction and Scotty's junction is sort of famous because that was a legal whorehouse or house of ill repute, however we want to use it, that the federal government took over because they hadn't paid all their taxes and they ran it out of business. That's just how efficient our government is. Yeah. So we're about 10 or 15 miles north of Scotty's Junction and an F-117 flies over about 45 degree angle uh, off the road at about 1,500 feet and I about crashed the car. So we get into Tonopah, we get, grab a quick bite, and we uh, head uh, east on US-6. It goes, you go out 14 miles. There's a big, huge sign that says Tonopah Test Range. So we head down that road. It's 18 miles to the main gate. I don't have, I can't get into a restricted area of which TTR is, but so we, we drove down the fence line. Now, this is before uh, digital cameras. So I was, I normally shot with Kodachrome, but beings, I wanted a quick turnaround. If, if I was able to shoot anything, I was using Coda Color 100, very fine grain color film. So we drive about two miles uh, west along the fence line, and you can see the whole uh, Tonopah Test Range facility. You can see all the 60-plus hangars, the runway, and everything else. And I looked to the north after we were there about 10 minutes, and there's uh, there's a black fuzzy ball about 15, 20 miles north with a white light underneath it. And then a little bluish white fuzzy ball right next to it. So I figured that's that's got to be the F-117 and a chase plane. So I'm there with my Nikon. I have my, uh, my uh, 70 to 200 millimeter Nikon lens. I'm shooting with, uh, with uh, print film. And I see it's coming, it's getting closer and closer. And I'm I'm up there and all of a sudden the airplane's starting to fill up the viewfinder. And I'm like a 10-year-old boy seeing a naked woman for the first time. My whole body is just vibrating. I mean, literally, it was it was like I was on a vibrating machine. I couldn't stop the shaking. So I didn't know if I had any good, if I had any good uh, prints. And then finally, you know, he went by us and landed. I said, John, let's get out of here. Let's get to Las Vegas so I can go to a photo mat. And you have to have white hair to know what a photo mat is. Uh, back in the day, if you had film you wanted processed and you went to your local Safeway or Rally, Rayleigh's or whomever, there was a little kiosk in the middle of the parking lot and it was uh, yellow and, and uh, red with uh, all the Kodak colors. And it, you, you go by, you wouldn't even have to get out of your car, open your window, that hand you an envelope, you put your name on it, put your film in it, hand it back to them, come back the next day. You have your prints. So I knew we weren't going to get back to Las Vegas in time to go to a photo mat. And it was, I was really, it was, it was, it was bothering me. So uh we head east on US six. We get to Warm Springs, which is the northern terminus of the extraterrestrial highway. Uh uh, Nevada, three seven, Highway 375. We head down that. We stopped the Little Lady Inn. Uh, Joe and Pat Travis ran the place, had a bite to eat. And then we headed back off to Vegas. We got to John's house. It's after nine o'clock, about 9.15. 
And he said, hey, I got a, uh, I said, I got a buddy of mine coming over. He just moved here from Albuquerque. I think you like him. He said, just it seemed like a nice guy. And about 10 minutes later, knock on the door. John goes and gets him, opens the, you know, brings him in. He introduces himself as Bob Lazar. He said, uh, uh, he's waiting, you know, he's waiting you know, for his final interview or clearance, whatever it is, to go to work out in the desert. He doesn't know what he's going to do, but he's been hired. So uh, I tell him my dilemma. I say, I have this print film. I know I have some good shots. Hopefully I have some good shots on the F-117, but I have to wait. I have to wait until, you know, two days, you know, before I, you know, you know, tomorrow and then the following day before I can get the stuff processed. And he said, well, I have a C-41 processing unit at my house. Let's go over there and process and see what you got. So Lear lives uh, just south of Nellis, uh, the backdrop is uh, Sunrise Ridge, which is that neat mountain behind Nellis Air Force Base. It's also behind John's house. But And Bob lived off of West Charleston on the other side of town. So we jump in his car. And we're not more on a block from Lear's house. And, and uh, Bob looks at me and he says, you know, I feel sorry for that dumb son of a bitch, John Lear. I said, what do you mean? He said, He's from this world famous aviation family. He said, "My God, his father brought the you know, brought Learjet to the world, and the dumb son of a bitch believes in UFOs." He says, "I'm a nuclear physicist. Oh if my I can't, God! If I can't prove it mathematically or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist." Oh, I said, and "You couldn't put a gun to my head to convince me that UFOs were real." That's about to change, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And so I asked him when I was visiting him. I said, "Do you remember what you told me?" The first day I met you, the first evening I met you, said that I didn't believe in UFOs. He said, yeah. I said, I didn't. They didn't. They, there's no way in the world they could exist. My mind's been changed. Big uh, time. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Yeah. What do you so say I, to the critics of Bob Lazar? A lot of people say, you know, he can't validate that he worked there. His <laughs> education is screwed up. Like they throw every stone they possibly can. We are supporters of Lazar. We believe him. 100%. I think it's too okay. improbable. He would know what he knew in 89 in terms of element 115. Yeah, okay. Every, everything would have been discovered. Everything, everything but, is coming true. The thing about the the, the government made him a non-person. Right. Uh, he had he had a college degree, very nice one. I didn't pay any attention to it when I over his, when I were his house for him to you know to uh, process the film. Uh and when George Knapp was doing uh, investigation on is Bob real, George went to Albuquerque and he went to the Sandia Library. And there's two sides: a classified side and a public side. He got a, he got the phone book that uh, of the time that Bob was there and opened it up, and there was Bob Lazar's name with the phone number and the room number that he uh, said he you know, worked in, and the two people in, that worked in the same lab as him. They were in there with the, the same number and whatever. And then, you know, Bob had told George that I was written up in the Sandia uh, newspaper. And it said, and I've seen the, I've seen the, the, the clipping. It said, uh, Sandia prof uh, uh, professor relaxes on weekend by going 300 miles an hour in his jet car. And there's a picture of Bob standing in front of his Lamborghini jet car. And that was, that was the Sandia newspaper saying professor uh, 
Bob Lazar, he relaxes on weekends on his jet car. Now, when I was at the Pentagon during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, I had Bob's W-2. And he's paid by the United States Navy. The Navy can handles, it used to be the Army, and then it reverted to the Navy. They handle all of the classified deep, deep, deep black program stuff that you know we'll never see the light of day. Did not know that. That's Is that to still me. to this day like that? Yeah, that's that. That's what they do today. They are in charge of 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 all the spooky programs. Wow, interesting so, to know. Yeah. So I I had Bob's W two. Now at uh, at the time of Desert Storm, I was an E six. I was a tech sergeant, and I was uh, the they needed historians to write the history of the air and army guard, the air force air guard, and the uh, army guard of their act their involvement and con contributions to Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So my job was to read every single message going to and from CENTCOM. From eyes only to, uh, you know, just uh, restricted access. I mean, not classified, but uh, uh, confidential. So I had uh, this one particular afternoon, I had, uh, I had a couple hours to kill. Uh, there was stuff that nothing was going on. There was conferences. There was other stuff going on. So I had uh, I had some you know, free time. So I got on the, the Pentagon computer, and I'm looking for the location of the Department of Navy that paid Bob Lazar. And I couldn't find it anywhere. And I couldn't find the zip code anywhere. So... Uh, I decided I was going to go someplace that may know. I think I think it was uh, Naval Investigative Services, but I'm not sure. Uh, but I, you know, I, I go in there. I'm in my my light blue short sleeved shirt with my ribbons and uh, my, my uh, dark blue uh, pants. I guess it's a Class A uniform of sorts, but not your not your dress uniform. And I go to the room that uh, you know the, this Navy Department of Navy. Uh, is located. I go in there and there's a young Lieutenant JG behind the counter. And I said, sir, can you tell me where this Department of Navy is located? And I hand him, excuse me, Lazar's W-2. And he looks at it and says, excuse me for a minute, Sergeant. He gets up, he goes into the two stars office, comes back about 20 seconds later. And he said, the Admiral will see you now. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Navy or just the military in general, no Navy two-star admiral is going to talk to an, an Air Guard slash Air Force enlisted puke unless it's really important. Mm -hmm. So I go in there and I give him a sharp salute. And he doesn't say at ease. He said parade rest. So I'm standing there and, and he's, he's almost trembling and he's holding Bob's W-2 up. And he said, Sergeant, I don't know where you got this, but if I ever see your face cross the threshold of my office ever again, you'll be the most sorriest some bitch in NCO in the United States military. Do you wow. understand me, Sergeant? I said, yes, sir. He said, with that, he put Bob's W-2 in the shredder. He said, you're dismissed. I gave him a sharp salute, did an about face and walked out. And I said, whoa, did I ever pull that guy's chain? Yeah. So, so if 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 Bob was a fraud, if Bob wasn't who he said he was, why would this? Why would I? Why would this Navy admiral even want to talk to me? And why? 
you know, why, why did he chew my butt out? Yeah. And so it just, it just adds more credibility to Bob Lazar and but, his story, his story has never changed. Yeah. And you know, I, I was going to say this, like, obviously he doesn't believe in it. He gets in, into this program, but what he did when he came out, I don't think that they had prepared for that or even anticipated that this was a possibility that somebody would go out and be public that much about S4 and Area 51. And legitimately, I know that whenever we um, defend Bob Lazar, because people are like, oh, well, his story doesn't pan out, whatever. And I'm like, I beg to differ. We all know of Area 51 and S4 because of Bob Lazar and George Knapp bringing it to the attention. How the did uh, you know Bob Lazar know about this installation? And the other proof as well is that he knew the exact location in the middle of a desert at 7.30 p.m. on a Wednesday night when people would see UFOs. And he brought tons of people out there to see it, even to the point at the end they had Wannabagos and whole parties and they got almost arrogant about how cool it was to be there. Uh, that would have not happened. And all these people testified that, yes, we saw this. There's even footage of, of you know people recording it. So people dismissing his story is purely just because I don't want to believe it or I don't trust the man or like we have this expectations as human that you need to be infallible, like that you need to be, you know, Jesus uh, yeah. quality of human to come out and say, hey, I've seen something bad. Even recently, somebody said, oh, he was just a janitor at Area 51. I'm like, I would still listen to the janitor at Area 51. Sure. Right. First, still need a yeah, clearance yeah, to be there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah even even. Uh, when uh, when he let when he when he went public, he still did his he, he still had a contract with the government to <clears throat> repair and adjust uh, radiation sensors. Bob Bob did work at at uh, Caltech, where you had to have at least a master's degree in physics to do what he was doing. Now they can't find they can't find his school records anywhere because he doesn't exist. His W his uh, social security number, according to the United States government, was never issued. Wow, to the so, lengths they'll go through, eh? Just to yeah. just to discredit you, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and uh, his wife at the time, uh, uh, she died mysteriously, and I think that's what spooked Bob, and that's when he decided that. There's something that's not right here, and I got I got to protect my butt. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the uh, off off to another another area. But to confirm what uh, Bob said, I, have, uh, I had a friend named Dave Fruhoff. Dave was a retired uh, lieutenant colonel, flew SR seventy ones. He lived in Lynchburg, Tennessee, about eleven miles from my dad. My dad lived in Tullahoma. He was uh, head of one of the big uh, wind tunnel complexes there at the Arnold Air Force Base. And I was visiting my dad, and I, you know, I I'd known Dave through my association with the Blackbird Association. So I called him up and said, "Hey, Dave." He said, uh, "You tied up?" I said, "No, no." I said, "I'm just down. I'm near Tullahoma. Can I come by and just interview you?" He said, "Well, sure." So I went there, and I, I primarily went there to interview him on his loss, him having to bail out of an SR-71 uh, that had a total electrical failure. And we got through all of that. And then and I told him, I said, do you believe in UFOs? And he said, absolutely, they positively do exist. Okay. Uh, 
I said, do you want to expand upon that? And I figured he was going to say, no. He said, sure. I said, I said, well, shoot. He said, I was on a night mission on an SR-71 flying out of Kadena, Okinawa. It's 11 p.m. at night. I'm flying, you know, I'm, I'm going straight and level. I'm at Mach 2.7 at about 78,000 feet. That's sort of a sweet spot for going to and from because you don't you don't thermally stress the systems. Okay. What's the fastest it, it could go though, Jim? Uh, the fastest an SR-71 has ever gone, Bill Weaver was in 974, which is the best flying of all the SRs. He went Mach 3.43 in, in, after he finished the test guard. It was, it was a, a 974 was assigned to Palmdale as site two for flight test. To go above Mach, to go to Mach 3.3, you need written permission from the wing commander. So guys, guys will fly Mach 3.2. There's no reason to fly any faster. The airplane uh, flies perfectly at 3.24. So uh, uh, Dave is in a night training mission. It's a three-quarter moon off the left side of the airplane. He gets a glint of something reflective. It had edges to it. He, did, he can't tell what it is. He can't tell how big it is. But he said it's it says five or six miles off to his right and five or 6,000 feet above him. So he gets hold of Kadena on secure voice and said, do we have another bird up? He said, no. He said, you were briefing today. He says, you're the only one up there. I said, well, I have company. I'm going to go take a look. So he's in minimum afterburner at Mach 2.7. So he advances the throttles. He does about a 10 degree bank and he starts climbing and you know, turning towards this object. He didn't want to open his visor because he's getting uh, reflections from the cockpit instruments because he's trying he's trying to look out to see if he can see where he doesn't see stars because up at 85,000 feet you got a bazillion stars up there. Wow. <clears throat> so uh he's getting closer and closer. He said when he was still a thousand or so feet below it and still a mile or so away from it this thing took off at about a 30 degree angle of attack and left him in the dust like he was heading the other direction. He figured it left him going between eight and 12,000 miles an hour. So between Mach 12 and Mach 16. And he couldn't believe what he saw. Uh, the backseater saw it as well. I don't know. He didn't say what, what he did once he got to Kadena because back, back in those days, you didn't report UFOs because that would destroy your, your yeah. right. credibility. Uh, my my boss in the Air Guard, uh, Air Force Chief of Staff, was Major General Wayne Gatlin. And I asked General Gatlin, and I guess it was 83, 84 time frame. He said, let's assume for the fact that I'm an F-4 pilot and I'm out uh, chasing something and I realize that I'm chasing a UFO. What do I do? So I've gotten up close to it. I've seen it. Uh, you know, I don't have a gun camera. You know, I'm, you know. We had RF4s at the time. I wasn't able to take a picture. I didn't have, I didn't have cameras installed with film. Uh, what what do I do? He said, well, you come back, you do your post-flight, go and take a shower, go to the club, pound down two or three really, really strong drinks, go to your billet and forget what you saw. Because if you report that you chased a UFO or you locked onto a UFO, uh, that your your career is just down the toilet. 
It's not going to happen. Jim, I got a question on that vein, though. Uh, you know, for yourself being part of this your entire life, a pilot is invested in, they spend millions of dollars training these guys and on how to observe, how to do their job, how to use the weaponry for crying out loud. Yeah. Yet somebody who's that trained, that professional comes back and says, hey, wait a minute, guys, there's something up there. Oh, you must be a loony. Let's ground you. Well, they, they, spent- they, won't, they, won't, they won't necessarily ground him, but if he's a major, he's not going to make lieutenant colonel. Yeah. That's all. Not getting promoted. Yeah, but why? Is it, are they just trying to shut you up? Like That's their incentive? The, the official... Uh, reaction to ufos is to ridicule the person right they don't don't exist it's it's their cover-up uh ufo has been going on for a long time now where are they coming from you know we don't know but i was a docent up at kit peak national observatories outside of tucson for a couple of years and they have the largest assemblance of optical telescopes in the world they have 22 of them up there everything from a 12 inch to a 13-foot primary mirror on the 4-meter male. The 2.1-meter was used by Caltech in remote viewing and also doing adaptive optics. For five years, they used the 2.1-meter telescope at Kitt Peak looking for exoplanets. Those are planets outside of our atmosphere, outside of our solar system. And over the course of five years, they cataloged eight thousand exoplanets and just before i left uh, they had gotten a new uh volunteer coordinator that talks down to people and you talk down to me that's going to last about this about two seconds and then i'm gonna i'm out of here but just before i left we had a uh they announced that they were having a uh, a beer and pizza at the noao headquarters which is the national optical astronomy observatories located at the University of Arizona in Tucson. So we're there, said all the all the astronomers, all the technicians, and all the docents were there for a gathering. We, they were going to hear about uh, from the head of the National Science Foundation as it pertains to astronomy. And this gentleman came, got up and started talking. He said he had just returned from a worldwide conference on exoplanets and he said, based on all the information gathered from all these different uh, telescopes, using proven mathematical formulas for probability, we calculate for every star in the universe, there's there's one and a half planets. Think about that number. Yeah. And out of that incredible number, there are two billion, that's with a B, two billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar-sized brown dwarf star as our sun in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. If we're the only ones, what a waste of space. That's to quote Jodie Foster's character in, in Carl Sagan's movie, Contact. We're not alone. We've never been alone. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I'm doing it has nothing to do with UFOs or airplanes, but it has to do with possibly alien involvement. Um I'm in the process of, you know, trying to raise money to to do an excavation of the largest Mayan pyramid complex in Belize. And there's three pyramids, uh, and there's there's a village or a city below it. Uh, it is the only location in the country of Belize that is not controlled by the federal government. The Belize is controlled by the village. 
because this village was isolated up until 2012 when they oh, cut wow. in a six mile road into this village. And, and just by pure luck or uh, God's will, however you want to look at it, we we sort of landed on this place and and every you know every every everything all the alignments of the stars were perfect for us to go in there and we've gotten uh, received permission we're you know working on the formal paperwork we have exclusive rights and access on the excavation and restoration of this three three pyramid complex so we need to raise about initially about one and a half million dollars and we're going to employ most of the able-bodied men in the village because it's it's a uh, subsistence type of uh, environment there. They grow everything they eat. Mm. Uh, none of them really have jobs. Some of them do, you know, uh, con- you know, construction work on the you know outside of the village. There's 700 people, men, women, children, and uh, Alfredo, who is the mayor, he's a short guy, about five foot tall. Uh, he said, we have 172 healthy, able-bodied men that's ready to go to work today and in, in taken off the overburden of the of the pyramids. So that's, uh, I went and spent two weeks down there. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating. On on the first full day we're there, I think one of the reasons we uh, that we were uh, given uh, more or less the, the, the prompt to go to... Uh, uh, this location and it's uh, U- Benton Kai uh, Pyramid Complex because we we were at another we were at one of the excavated sites in Belize, not that far from Punta Gorda, and it's about a mile and a half walk and about and we were almost at the very end of it. It had it had rained, it, the sky had opened up and just dumped water on us and everything was wet. And I'm about 20 feet from the end of being off the pyramid. And it's just, they just do the tops. They don't do the whole thing. We're going to do the whole thing. And I have, I have a real bad sense of balance. I had brain tumor and they severed my auditory nerves. So I have real shaky balance and I'm an old guy. I'm 78. So I decided I wasn't going to go down the steps, which were uneven. They were built by the Mayans, they, you know, and they had sharp edges. I figured, well, I'll, I'll just go on the side over here. And I take st- one step, and I feet went out from beneath me. I went head first into this pile of rubble. And these are sharp edge rocks, and I had a gash and a puncture wound. And I get up, and of course, it's raining. A little bit of blood goes a long way. A lot of blood goes even farther. So it didn't hurt that much. I went down. We, you know, they got a first aid kit. They cleaned it up, and uh, we're driving out of the village. We got out of the complex. We're driving this little village of maybe three or four hundred people, and there's a clinic there. Go in. There's a doctor. He's uh, from Cuba. He escaped here a couple of years ago, and uh, we started talking. And he was surprised how old I was. He said, "said I have I have some you know some patients that are in the early seventies, and they're." They look 10, 20 years older than you look. And I said, well, I just, I lead a clean life. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so they sewed me up. I got 11 stitches. Uh, they said, don't go in the water, any water, other than a swimming pool or a shower. Uh, because if you go in the rivers or the, uh, the ramp, man, man, mangrove swamp water, uh, 
you may you may turn into swamp thing. So we don't want that. Full to of happen. parasites so, and stuff, right? Oh God, yeah, just something yeah. terrible. So uh, I figured since I gave blood and DNA to the Mayan gods, they decided uh, to guide us towards uh, the village of Santa Cruz, in which they did. And yeah, that been, was your sacrifice to the gods, right? Right, right, yeah. right. And it turns out this supposed, according according to stuff that we've read, that this complex is the largest and the oldest one in Belize. And it was occupied uh, between uh, 200 AD and about 800 AD. And so it's been vacant ever since. Um we talked to uh, archaeologists that were at the sites that were given tour guide. You know, they were tour guides, but they you know working on their masters or PhD in, in Mayan archaeology. And there's there's speculation now. They're saying that it's very possible that the pyramids are not two thousand years old. They're more like twenty thousand to two hundred thousand years old. And the and the Mayans found them. They had been abandoned, and the Mayans repurposed them. Mm. Well, so uh, that just adds an awful lot. Two hundred thousand years old, and they were able to build these things like Machu Picchu. Now, the the level of sophistication is not at all like you have at Machu Picchu. This is is this is probably could be even earlier, because the uh, there's a lot of paragonal construction, but not to the point uh, that they have uh, there at uh, in some of the other famous sites. So, but we have a 305 acre site that is now ours to excavate. And uh, we're going back, we're going back in probably uh, early October. Jared Murphy, who uh, has a site, uh, has a podcast, Not Aliens. And Jared's a friend of mine. We're both from Minnesota. And Jared had headed this. This is Jared's pro, you know, project, and I just—it was a perfect fit, personality-wise, and everything else was. But Jared decided on Memorial Day. Well, I'm 50 years old. I think it's time for a massive heart attack. Oh no! And he did. He had what they called a widowmaker. No, oh, no. And if it wasn't for his his best friend and his, and his business partner, who was right there, gave him CPR, broke four ribs. He lost absolutely nothing as far as his brain function. Mm. Uh, and that's what that's what everybody was concerned about because you know Jared is once you know he's very, very smart, very smart. and you know to lose a brain like that. But I knew things were going to be okay when he was I think it was day three of his of his uh, heart attack and he was on a respirator for eight days and uh, unconscious for five of those days. But they're trying to see if he has any brain function. There's tests that you, you can do if you have you know, if if the only thing alive is your brain stem, and that's the bottom of the foot. If you get a sharp object and go like that, the foot will curl, and his did. So, like I say, it's just, it hasn't been 72 hours yet, and uh, he hasn't opened his eyes. He's still unconscious, heavily sedated, and the doctor uh, says, Jarrett, if you can hear me. Wiggle your toes, and he did. And his girlfriend Michaela, about you know, she about fell down with joy. And he said, "Can you, you know, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand?" And he did. And just right after they took out the uh, the breathing uh, tube, 
uh, he's still semi-unconscious. They were saying, well, he can't put his contacts back in, so we need to get reading glasses so he can read emails and whatever. And he's, but they still don't know how how well his brain is. You know, he was able to wiggle his toes and squeeze the hand. And he said with almost, I mean, he had no voice. He said, get hold of my ophthalmologist in Sandy, Utah, where he was living. He just checked my eyes. He has the prescription. He can tell you what's, you know, what, what uh, magnification you need for the, for the, the readers. So right then there, we knew he was all there. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I talk to him almost every day now and it's, uh, we're working towards, uh, we have to uh, come up with a, a lot of money up front. We're going to do a LIDAR scan. That's going to cost us about 20 grand. Mm-hmm. And light, the LIDAR is uh, what they can, what they can do is unbelievable. Uh, yeah. I saw what they, uh, what uh, Tom Elmore did up at the, uh, it's up in New England. They refer to it as the uh, American Stonehenge. And you can see inside buildings. You can see the walls. You can see the plumbing. You can see what's below you in the dirt. And it'll stop on, on, on solid object, but it looks through trees. You know, if there's trees there, they just disappear. So we're going to, we're going to do a scan of, there's three pyramids. We can't go to the third pyramid right now because it's occupied and it's occupied by a very, very large hive of Africanized honeybees, the mm. killer bees. So no one wants to go anywhere near there. And they're going to probably wait until, uh, uh, right now we're in the middle of the, the monsoon season and they'll, they were going to go there and, and, uh, cause they, I think the, the bees move out when it's, when it, when it gets really wet. So they're going to try to go in there and take down the hive. Um, uh, they're not going to kill it. You know, they're not going to kill the bees or, you know, you know tortured or whatever, but they're going to gather all the honey and, uh, but get rid of the, uh, the hive. I guess it's, I guess it's massive. It's yeah, been going on for probably would be those those are the largest bees on the planet. But yeah. but before I we don't want to waste too much more of your time, Jim. I want to ask you a couple quick questions though, sure. just in relation to government tech versus non-human intelligence tech. And uh, you were in a movie uh, produced by our good friend Darcy Weir, uh, Secret yeah. Space UFOs: The Rise of the TR3B. For yeah. those of you who don't know, the TR3B is essentially a black triangle that supposedly we have uh, engineered. And I've always been fascinated by the stories of it. And you're an expert on this type of stuff. So what can you tell us about you well, know, I mean, government-made UFO tech? If if someone sees a UFO and has a red and green light on it, which is, really required, which is really required to fly in controlled airspace, it's man-made. Yeah. If it has rivets and seams on it, it's man-made. Uh if there's only one, if we can only prove without a shadow of a doubt there's the one real alien craft, that's all we need. That's mm. right. Yeah. But they've been, you know, the, the governments of the world have been hiding this stuff forever. I mean, there's you look at some of you look at some of your Renaissance paintings. They have discs up in yeah. the sky with beams coming down. Uh you know, the you know, the Romans took took about you know, talked about the flying shield. That was, you know, spewing out fire or whatever. And to quote Jodie Foster's character, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. 
the TR3, there's a TR3A. It's built by Teledyne Ryan. So it's a flying triangle. And it may have been, you know, some of the prototypes of what they're doing to build the TR3B. Now, I know, I've known people who have been at work at Area 51s since they found the lake bed in 1954. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've asked all of them, you believe in UFOs? And all of them said, absolutely, absolutely, they positively do exist. And, uh, you know, but I, I don't have anything I put my hands on. Just before he passed away, I was talking to Ben Rich. He was at USC Medical Center. He was dying of esophageal cancer, probably brought on by the solvents used in low observable uh, coatings on F-117 and Hab Blue and other ones. And uh, we were talking about our, our late friend, John Andrews, and a bunch of other stuff. And then uh, just, just before the end of the conversation, he said, Jim, we have things out in the desert. And he wasn't referring to Area 51. He said, we have things out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Now, I can comprehend a hell of a lot. And he said, if you've seen movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there done that or decided it wasn't worth the effort. I said, Ben, you want to expand upon that? And he said, no, which is very typical Ben Rich. And then some of us had the nerve to die on me 10 days later. So, <laughs> he uh, drops a bomb right before he leaves, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so like to that point, do we have a space force? Is there a fleet of craft that have, have non-human have... or sorry, non-terrestrial officers, like people full-time, you know, is it like Star Wars? Do we have ships on patrol out there? I have to believe, yes. Do I have oh. proof? No. Right. But my gut tells me. Now, we haven't, you know, we haven't been using all this alien technology for not. I mean, you know, Bob Lazar said, if you wanted to go from one end of the universe to the other, if this was the universe, you're here, you want to go here, you focus over there, and as soon as you release the uh the, the power whatever it is you're there mm-hmm. there's no, there's there's no time interval involved now i don't know how it is when you come back from that location you know has the world moved on 60 years or 6000 years or a million years i don't know but it, if you've seen movies like star trek or star wars we've been there done that or decided it wasn't worth the effort and I but, don't think I don't think he would have told me that just to yank my chain as he as he knew he was going to uh, uh, he wasn't going to be around any longer. Yeah. Well, so. you know, and, and I mentioned that a few times, Jim, that, you know, they're building Space Force. But to build Space Force, do you get the, the do you recruit people first and then build the ships or do you build the ships first and then recruit the people to operate the ships? You know, it's kind of like which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I, th- I think I think it was parallel. Oh, you think it was growth at the same time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have you have the now when I when I was doing my book signing at the Skunk Works uh with uh, Jeff Babion, who was the vice president general manager, number one guy. We're heading over to the U2 operation at Site 2 at Palmdale, Air Force Plant 42. And we're in the back of the limo, and I I'm about two feet from his face. I look him right in the eyes. I say, All right, uh uh Jeff. How much alien UFO technology is being utilized in Skunk Works programs? 
And he, and he responded almost immediately. I don't know if he was ready for it. He didn't, I mean, he didn't look shocked or jump back. He said, he said, I have absolutely no knowledge of any alien technology that was that's being utilized in skunk works programs. But I don't know what was built in the past that I may not have a need to know about. Yeah. I said, my job, my job is to is not to look back. My job is to look to the future. And uh, said, personally, I mean, said Lockheed has a policy. Do, you don't comment at all on UFOs, period. Mm. Personally, I, I feel we can't be alone. And that's basically his only comment. But I did ask the number one skunk. Do you believe in you? I mean, you know, how much alien technology is being utilized? Yeah. And there... The, there are facilities, there's got to be facilities. I, I know Dugway is a place that has been uh, ID'd as a place for underground, very, very large underground facility. Uh, and there's a new base 90 minutes from Twin Falls, Idaho. We're not sure where it's at. I was told by multiple people that, that it is... Uh, a new base it's in the middle of nowhere they decided they weren't going to uh put a restricted area around it air you know uh as far as uh airspace goes because as soon as you put a restricted area box up it's a big red flag hey yes. this this restrictive area is brand new they're doing something let's go out there and investigate yeah and uh what i what i hope to do someday and i don't know if i can pull it off my friend Michael Schratt is a licensed pilot. He had a lot of hours on uh, single engine. I think he has twin engine uh, time too. To go to uh, Twin Falls, go to the, the local FBO, rent a 172, and then go fly around the northeast corner of Nevada, see if we can find something. Because that's where, that's where supposedly everything, the new place is. Oh, I'm sure. To, yeah, I'm sure Bob's um, coming out and made them have to move all their crap. Yeah, you know, because it would bring so much attention to it. They're like, crap, now we got to move everything. Well, well there's the many that, S locations. It's not just S4, right? Just no. like Area 51. There's an Area 52. Like they're well, not the one and only, you know, the, the way Area 51 got its name. And the only reason I know this, because I was in the command post there at Nevada test site. I was being Bill Sweetman. uh, uh mind just went warren james who was a rocket scientist uh Stu brown who was time you know senior editor at pop sci and myself we're on a tour of the nevada test site and we're we're at the sedan crater i mean that big uh 1300 foot wide 400 feet deep hole that blew out so much radiation and dust and i'm surprised it didn't kill everything uh uh downwind but to to track fallout when they were doing above ground nuclear tests they built a grid from area one through area 200 and extends out into utah and even parts of colorado so the one the ones the area to the west of area 51 is area 50 the one to the east is area 52 there's it just happens that happens to be it if it had been any other number it wouldn't be area 51 it'd be whatever the area was 
at the there's time. 200 of these locations yeah and it was it was they put sensors up when they had above ground nuclear tests which they stopped in 62 yeah uh so that's the grid that's how that's how the area got its name now on my uh on my facebook page i have a picture taken on uh december 25th 2021 of area 51 a guy flew around it and he didn't have a real good camera. He had a, a Pentex P1000 and it's a fixed lens. It goes from, from 30 to 300 or to 3000 millimeter. And I don't know what he was shooting. He needed someone to go up in his airplane with a Nikon 850 with a really, really huge lens to get something because there's all sorts of new construction there. There's a building that's at least a mile away from the, from any part of the flight line that you you go into and go out of so they're they're loading something really really nasty in that uh in that hangar and big uh, yeah and yeah. it's a big one it's a big one so, and most of it's underground if i understand correctly well now now at area 51 there's there's dave fruoff when he retired as an sr-71 pilot after chasing a ufo because of his clearance and because of the area that he worked in he got a job. He ended up getting a job as facility manager at Area 51. He wow. was responsible for every structure from the largest hangar to the paint locker. And he was responsible for all non-program maintenance on the aircraft. Plus, he did photo chase. And I asked, I asked Dave when I was when you know in my conversation when we were talking about uh him chasing a UFO, he said there are said there are no underground facilities at area 51 because I would have been responsible for those areas. But on the other side of the Papoose range, we have the ability to dig, you know, to cut through a 36 foot diameter hole through solid granite in about a foot an hour. And that's how they made the holes, you know, going down to detonate the nuclear weapons on underground detonations and that's how they made yucca mountain they have the ability to do that so but what you have is if you've done excavation you have to have a road in and a road out yeah and you and unless there's an embedded nuclear power plant at the location which is very possible uh you wouldn't have to have power lines coming into it somehow at from some location and all the scanning I've done, uh, I haven't seen any, but I haven't. Uh, uh, we've gotten really good at camouflage as well. Yeah. So just, you know, just because we can't find it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That's yeah. the whole point, right? Make yep. it so it can't be found. Yep. Or make it difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. But I, but I had, uh, I was, I was at the disclosure uh, project with Dr. Greer, uh, couple of weeks ago in DC. And I talked to five of the six uh, whistleblowers. And these guys, I mean, you can, you can tell just by the quivering in their voice and the emotion that it brought up. These guys are real. These are telling, these are guys are telling the truth. And there's some stuff that happened. Uh, one guy lost his dad, his dad lost everything. Cause he was, he worked in the, you know, classified environment he lost his clearance he ended up losing his house he lost everything uh his dad quit talking to him and that was his best friend in the whole wide world and wow. he, his dad came up with some weird cancer and ended up dying 
and he should go he should go after the federal government uh and run someone through the coals for doing what they did to him and his family they made life absolutely miserable and yeah regardless took- of your uh, opinion of greer maybe some of the people he's representing are telling the truth so don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. So well, you know, because because of what he's what he has done, uh, he's now working with, and so is the cousin brothers. They interviewed him. Is a uh, congressman from Kentucky, I think Tim Burnett or Bur- Burchett. Burchett, yeah, and he's the real deal. Uh, and on video, he uh, he said, "I have I have seen material that I know is not of this earth." Well, yeah, uh, and he's in charge of the new, uh, uh, the new investigative committee, whatever it is on uh, UFOs, and there, and more and more people are going back instead of UAPs. More and more people are, are even within the community, are saying UFOs slash you, you know UAPs. So yeah. the UFO uh, name is going to stick. They try to change it to, to take away some of the mystique or some of the neg- negativity that goes around with, oh, you're a UFO guy. Now, I have been out at the, at the fence line at Tonopah Test Range or Area 51 over 80 different times over the last 40 years. I've been out in the desert just myself. All right, if there's a UFO, I want to see it. I've been at the black mailbox. This is the early 90s. It was a, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was just a sliver of the moon as it went behind the uh, uh, the mountains I'm sitting there. I say, okay, if you can, if you can read my mind, abduct me. And I'm, I'm, I'm think, I'm concentrating as hard as I can. But let me take my Nikon with me. <laughs> and I don't. On I mean, one condition, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, do what you have to do. Make sure I get home intact because I do have a wife, and I think she'd be really upset if, uh, if all of a sudden. Uh, uh, I left. I left this universe. I left this solar system and went somewhere else to be experimented on. So, are UFOs real? Yeah, millions of people are reporting them. Millions of people have had experience with them. Uh, with John Lear, one of the things he did uh, when he worked for ATA, uh, ATA American Trans Air. He went out and he actually found, tracked down people who had said they had been abducted. And he fly into that particular city. He would contact the, uh, the local psychi- psychiatric uh, community. He said, I need the name of a certified hypnotist that specializes in deep dives. Let's see. I'm going to go into your deepest, darkest secrets. And he would pay for him. And I, I don't know if you, if you would... Uh, give the, the the person you know the person being interviewed or being hypnotized uh anything he never said one way or the other but he had 15 candidates and over the course of about five years he said 13 of the abductees had the exact same story hmm. two of them were full of you know what yeah he could tell just by their their reactions even under hypnotism because they you know they they had gotten to a point they were, weren't really going under. Uh, I've been hypnotized a number of times for you know for various things, and I, I guess the smarter you are, the easier it is to hypnotize you. Oh, really? I it's, didn't know that. It's the yeah. dumb slugs because yeah, you that believe are hard. it's possible. It's the oh, ones yeah. that don't think it's going to work. It doesn't work. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. Because of hypnotism, you know, I lost 170 pounds. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's at an amazing time, feat. Yeah. At one time, I, I was 375. I mean, this morning, I was 205. So. Wow. Well, my, the fraud that I was married to was trying to kill me. I would probably consume 5,000 uh, calories of garbage after dinner every night. Wow. And I gained all that weight the 10 years I was married to her. And she was hoping I would die. Yeah. Uh, and kill you she, with food. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, you're going to be around for many years to come, Jim. We hope anyways. Well, I'm, I'm 78. I have a real strong heart. I have great blood pressure. I don't have problem with cholesterol. All the parts that are critical to my existence work perfectly. It's the, it's the parts that wear out. Like I have artificial knees. Uh, I've had carpal tunnel. I know I'm going to have shoulder surgery someday. Maybe not. Maybe I can make it to a hundred. Uh, and I know I'm going to live to be over a hundred. And my mom is hundred percent Sicilian and five or six male members of her extended family lived to be 103 to 107. Nice. These are, also, these are all rough and tumble, tumble Sicilian fishermen or, or hitmen, one of the two. Uh, Mom said there was two sides of the family, the Cardinales and the Brunos. The Brunos were fair-haired, blonde, redheads, green or blue eyes. They, they were the artisans. They were the stone, you know, the stone masons and whatever. It said then we had the Cardinale side, the black hair, the dark skin, the dark eyes. They were the murderers, the loan sharks, you know, you know, the hitmen and straight up mafia. Oh, yeah. Mother, my father referred to it as the Mothers and Fathers Italian Association. Yeah. Mm. Yeah like yeah. that one jim yeah. we'll have to do a part two um because obviously you, you your knowledge is is extensive and there's no way we can cover it all in an hour and a, and a half uh but we'll definitely do a part two if you're okay with it we'll go uh, ahead and absolutely. We'll, absolutely yeah we'll, we'll yeah it was fun it. chatting with you it's uh it's cool to get some of this perspectives because you've talked to the big name people a lot of them are passed away there's no more testimony coming from them yeah but the trust you had the relationships you had they told you stuff that if Jason and I were to interview Ben Rich, like he's not going to tell us anything, right? But right. because you've I mean, been so so ben, engrossed in it. Ben and I talked about once a quarter for almost 25 years. Yeah. If I didn't call him, he called me. And I uh, last time I saw him face to face, he'd already retired, but he had an office across the street from the Skunk Works in Burbank. And he gave me a box of slides. And they were they weren't anything to go ooh about but they were a program called senior prom. They were a baby F-117 looking cruise missile. Mm -hmm. And it's still classified today. But he said, as far as Lockheed's concerned, it's not. And he said, don't, don't show these uh, images to anybody until I've been dead for at least five years. Cause then it's, I'm, it's harder to, to drag my butt out of the, out of the grave and wake me up and, and punish <laughs> me. <laughs> so but I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I got the relationship with Ben. He was. It was because it was because of my my friendship with John Andrews. John would write letters to Ben all the time, and he had beautiful penmanship and a brilliant mind. Um, and he's the one who asked Ben. He said, "Ben, do you do you and Kelly believe in UFOs?" And there was two categories: both man-made and extraterrestrial. And Ben came back, and it's been published multiple places, with with his, his corporate letterhead, president of the Lockheed Skunk Works, 
both Kelly and I are firm believers in both categories. We refer to ours as unfunded opportunities, underlines the U, the F, and the O. And it said, but beware, there are people out there that uh, will lead you astray and can possibly do you harm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So do we have do we have proof? Yeah, I think we do. Uh, are they are aliens real? I have to say without a doubt, absolutely. We're not alone. Uh, but one of, one of the glues that holds the world together is the glue of believing in a supreme being, whether it's Jesus Christ, whether it's Muhammad, whether it's Buddha, Adam Smith, whatever. And if all of a sudden the world is being told that there's no such thing as heaven and hell, I mean, there is on earth. I know that because I've been married three times. <laughs> <laughs> you got the battle scars. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I, but the, the sweetheart I'm married to now, she's, you know, she's the one I was supposed to marry and begin with. Uh, she's just, you know, she, I go on my road trips. I drive my poor vet everywhere I go. Uh, I tell her, I'm going to go to Hawaii for two weeks. You want to come along? No, you go there. Have a good time. I go to Hawaii. I, that's where I was before I retired. I, mm. I, lived, in, I lived in Waikiki at the Ilikai. I had the best room. I had the best apartment number of them all. Nine one one. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It comes in handy in an emergency, right? Oh yeah. 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 So uh, uh, we're not alone. Yeah. There's yeah. there's just too much out there. The uh, this this thing with the uh, uh, the guys at Kit Peak being told that hey, there's two billion Earth-like planets. There's got to be occupied. A couple of them got to be occupied. We're only. Four billion years old, our solar system and our galaxy. The universe is 13.5, but based on images from the Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope, they found a four-star complex. And according to what they've been using forever, redshift to determine the distance, you know, you know how old they are that these stars and galaxies the, were there a billion years before the supposed Big Bang. Yeah. How do we well, answer that? I mean, how did, as good a mathematician as you are, how does anybody go, yeah, we're 13.7 billion years old? Like, how accurate really is that number? I mean, we are mere mortal humans, you know, yeah. and wouldn't Plus, surprise me if it was five times older or half as old because it's an educated guess, I believe. No, no they, yeah, they, they, they've been able to, they've been able to prove, you know, th through, you know, through good science that, yeah. you know, you can measure the distance away from us by the redshift. And yeah. there's a certain, now one of the things that's going on at Kitt Peak and it's right now it's close to the public. They had a fire, going up the mountain and it didn't do any damage at the kit big, but it damaged a lot of the, there are no barriers and it's 2000 feet down if you run off the road. So they, you know, until they get the barriers put up, they it won't be open to the public, but there's uh, just, just at the mail, that's just, this is the four meter telescope. They, and there's a twin telescope, the exact built at the exact same time down in Chile that they took off the secondary mirror. They put a uh, a optical uh, head up there with 5,000 optical lenses that are all adjustable. And what they were, you know, it was slowed down by by uh, the scandemic, but 
for five years, they were going to do a spectral analysis at each location. They figured they're going to do 40 million galaxies, so a total would be about 100 million galaxies. And they're trying to identify some way to measure dark energy and dark matter. Because they say that 95% of the atomic weight of the universe is made up of dark matter. Yeah. You can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it, you can't touch it, but it affects absolutely everything in the universe. Mm -hmm. and they're trying to determine that. And stuff like that just, just tickles the hell out of me. And I'm waiting for the giant Magellan telescope to get first light. They make, they make the mirrors at the mirror lab at the University of Arizona, and they have built eight 27-foot diameter mirrors. Now, one's a spare in case they drop one. I can't imagine. <laughs> uh uh, but it's at six. The, the uh, telescope is at 16,000 feet. It's in Chile. It's 200 miles from the closest town. It's some of the driest air on the planet. It hasn't rained in 200 years. Uh, and yeah, I think you have to wear the oxygen if you're up there, but it's, it's operated remotely you know, at a lower level. They figure they'll be able to look back within 100,000 years of, of the first light in the universe. But what they may see is they may see past what they think is first light. And it may, it may go back a couple more billion years. They don't know that. Mm -hmm. And every time, every big telescope that they put up, whether it was the Hubble, whether it's the James Webb, whether it's going to be the giant Magellan telescope or even Galileo's telescope. Every time you, you make that, that jump in technology, all of a sudden you realize, well, I don't know squat. Everything I thought he knew, it's not real anymore. It doesn't happen. So it's going to be exciting. So I, I have my, I have my fingers in a lot of things and people say, well, you're retired. Why don't you slow down? I said, if I stop moving, I'll die. Yeah. I have to keep this thing working all the time. Uh, I have to challenge my brain. I have to use my brain and I enjoy it. It keeps, it keeps, it keeps me refreshed. I guess that's probably the best way to put it. Uh, and I'm a news hog. I mean, I read everything about everything around the world, but I don't I don't listen to anything of the mainstream media here. Everything I read is your your European or foreign press, but English language foreign press. Um, and I have friends all over the place and I get I get stuff and I just it's just what I do and I enjoy it. And I'm having a time of my life. And I, I mean, really it's an inspiration for guys our age too, young guys to be able to sit and chat with somebody like you, you know, friends with Bob Lazar for 35 years. I, tell him to come on our show, would you? See yeah. You oh, I asked, yeah. No, I asked him. I because I wanted him on, uh, you know, either with uh, SOR or uh, when I'm with uh, Jared Murphy or with, with Ron Mason on Wednesday nights. He said, right now, I can't. I can't do anything like that, but that's just right now. That will change. So I'm one of the very few people who have never backed down on my belief in, in Bob Lazar and he knows it. Yeah. Um, it's even in writing when, uh, oh, God, I can't remember his name. He did uh, a book called Dreamland Chronicles. And uh, our chapter is called the the elders and the chapters on John Andrews and Jim Goodall. And I, in there, I, I say, look, I, so I'm a real skeptic about a lot of things, but everything my gut tells me and everything I see from Bob Lazar, he's real. 
Mm. And I believe, and his story has never changed. Even when it was his benefit, it was beneficial for him to say, yeah, I saw grace. He never did. He never saw the alien. He saw references to him, but he never saw any, you know, any bodies or any, you know, they call them the kids. Uh, the other thing is S4 real. There, there was a Mormon historian that was looking for the lost, uh, lost Mormon tribe and following their, their path through the Nevada desert. And they they were stopped at the uh, coming from Salt Lake. They were stopped at uh, uh, the border of Area 51 and Nevada test site. And the government would let them let them through. So he went around the other side of the Mercury site, and he snuck in. He walked in, and he was underneath an under an, uh, an overhang, and he was he was aware of of helicopters and stuff, but. Since it's not Area 51, you know, there, there isn't any active centers uh, out there. It said in the middle of the night, he got up to go to the bathroom and he's looking across uh, Frenchman Flats and Yucca Flats over towards the uh, the southeast corner, the southwest corner of the Papoose Range. And all of a sudden, it was like someone was opening up a garage door. He saw the lights opening up. I mean, the, the light get really bright. Uh, couldn't tell what was happening. There was too far away. I don't think he had a, a good pair of binoculars. And then it closed. Next morning he got up and uh, he had, you know, you know, he did have some way. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it's a telescope, not a telescope, but a, a set of okay binoculars. And he went and looked at it, and there was nothing. It was nothing but uh, the base of the mountain. Another thing, I have a friend of mine who had spent five years at Area 51 in the F-117 program, and he had a down day. This is after one of them, after Ridenour crashed because they had switched the pitch and yaw outputs on the flight computer. And they had a Humvee, and there was a couple of guys, they were driving around. They were looking for artifacts from mining, you know, old bottles and stuff. So they're on, they're actually on Papoose Lake and just looking for stuff. And out of nowhere, came a half a dozen guys in black utilities armed. What are you doing here? Let me see some ID. You have no reason to be over here. Get out. They don't know where they're coming. There was no vehicles. They just appeared. Mm. And that's exactly where Bob said S4 was located. So, yeah, no, hands down. We've always been strong supporters of Bob, uh, his story. And if ever, he ends up listening to this or or just hears word of mouth like we definitely will treat him like gold and royalty to come on because uh we're just as far as we're concerned he's like one of the original whistleblowers he came out everybody dismissed him for 30 out what years and now there's starting to be other people coming forward saying actually no he was He's dead on because we're still working on those programs. He's and yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. And you know, the fact that you got to know him in 88, right before he came out in 89, right before he started as a non-believer job, right before yeah. he started yeah. the job. Yeah. That's crazy. He's he's sort of the Rosetta Stone of UF, you know, in the UFO uh community. Yeah. And he said, I had it didn't benefit him at all to go public. He's, he told me. Not at all. No, he ruined said his life. The, the worst mm. thing he ever did in his life was go public. He said, he said, but that killed his opportunity to, you know, to go to go to take this to fruition. 
and and, and that's his that's his only regret. But he you know, he felt he he felt he had to come out. He had you know he had to tell the world what he was doing. And good on him because that shows his strength, his manhood, and only that that the people deserve to know, right? Right. Uh, keeping people in the dark. You know, I don't know about you, Jim, but sometimes some companies put out a, a thing they're looking for help. Instead of getting experts to help them, they get the general population to help them. And the solution that the general population comes up with is beyond what anybody on that staff of that business could come up with. Yeah. And if this information, this technology is is shared and everybody in the world can apply their logic and reason to it, we'll solve this a lot faster than we are right now, right? Yeah. And yeah. uh, it, it's a group effort. And, you know, even people like yourself that, you know, you've been around military installations your entire life, for people like yourself to come forward and say, you know what? Yeah, during my career, this and this and this happened. I know this guy. I know this is true. It gives credibility and it builds the story of everything that's taken place so far to where we are now. And it validates that, yes, there is a situation. Yes, the things that we all think is conspiracy theory is actually reality. And this is important. This is why this podcast is important, because it gives a platform for people like yourself, sir, to come on and share with, you know, 150 plus thousand people a month uh, what it is that you're that, that your your knowledge on this. So yeah. we really appreciate it. Uh, guys, I'm going to have to wrap it up. I have some shopping I have to do with uh, the, the missus and the family today. But uh, Jim, let's have you on again for part two. You are welcome here on this podcast at any time, my man. You want to come in, promote a new book that you're doing or anything like that, just hit us up, okay? Well, if if, if any of you are interested in any of my books, go into Amazon and just punch in books by James C. Goodall. And my hardbound ones will come right up. And you can also go in and search by Jim Goodall. I did a lot of squadron signal stuff with Jim Goodall. Um, but buy my books if... Uh, you know, if I have a book signing thing anywhere and you have a bunch of my books that, you know, that you either bought at a flea market or, you know, you bought 25, 30 years ago, bring them. I'll sign. I'll autograph them for you. Now, one of the things that I'm going to do, hopefully you know, later on this summer, is uh, Northrop Grumman had no idea that I had uh, a really good B2 book. And I was uh, with Michael Schrapp and uh, Joel Christopher Payne. We were in uh, L.A. This is February. Uh, Elon Musk invited me for a tour of SpaceX. And it's it, the tours are in the evening. So during the day, I'm with Michael Schrapp and Joel. And I went and bought my quarter, my new Revell quarter-inch SR-71 kit. I don't know if I'll ever build it, but it's underneath the bed. I'll get to it someday. Uh, but we went to the north of Grumman campus at, in Manhattan Beach, which is an open campus, because Michael wanted to go to the gift, gift shop. So we're in there. And I had with me in my bag, a the uh, binding was broken. It was damaged a little bit on you know, shipment. You can't give it away. You can't sell it. Uh, so I'm talking to the you know, gift store manager. And he said, you don't have anything on the B2? He said, we could really use one. I said, how about something like this? And she looked at going through and she about wet her pants. She says, I got to tell my boss. So she sent it off to her boss. She called me up, said, this is great. I sent it off to my boss and Lou is in charge of everything. And they're going to order a whole bunch of them. And they want me to come to plant four at uh, Air Force plant 42 is where they built the B2 and the B21. Said I have to be escorted in. I said, I won't be able to see the B21 but I'll be within 150 feet of it. 
and every they're going to have their books the books there i'm going to do an autograph uh, party and everybody that has any books of mine bring them and i'll sign them too awesome, awesome. everybody support jim goodall go check out his pages jim thanks again for being on the show we really appreciate it as jason said you're welcome back anytime and uh best of yeah. luck with everything in the future we'll chat with you again soon and you want to do uh, part two, just, you know, tell me when, and I'll be more than, more than happy to join you. I had a, I had good. A, it was a fun time. And how long were we on? Ooh. Just shy of two hours. So we yeah. broke our hour long nugget rule, but that's okay. Good content yeah. is good content. So. All right. All right. You guys appreciate a, you, Jim. You guys, Thank you, sir. You have a great week coming up and uh, I had a great time and I'm looking forward to coming back. Awesome. Take care, Jim. All right. Adios. Take care.